um, in the afternoon at this time, we'll do some guided practice. Always, as Anushka said, like a kind of laboratory inside your own mind and experience. Um, In this practice, uh, I'd like to first talk about what I think of as three fundamental ways to engage our experience skillfully and productively. Uh, I'm personally quite familiar with how to engage my experience unskillfully, unproductively. Maybe you are as well. Uh, I want to focus here on skillful means. In my way of thinking about things, and much as the Buddha himself uh, famously said in Pali, ehi pasiko, see for yourself, always see for yourself. Take nothing on faith alone. Um, In my own view, uh, I think there are three fundamental ways to engage the mind, to engage experience usefully, helpfully, skillfully. And the first of these is to simply be with what's there. We may observe it, hopefully, with interest and acceptance and curiosity. We might investigate it. We might explore it. We might sense down into its elements, such as really feeling into what makes up the sensation of pain in the knee or uh, a worry in the mind. Uh, We might even sense down to what's younger or more vulnerable or more fundamental. And in the process of all that, uh, what is there in the mind, in the field of spacious awareness, hopefully, with some quality of stepping back from it, disidentifying from it, what is there might change, but we're not deliberately trying to change it. I think this is the most fundamental way to practice, and it's the centerpiece, really, of practice here on retreat. And it's not the only way to engage the mind usefully. The second major way is to prevent or reduce or release that which is harmful or creates suffering for ourselves and often for others. So we relax tension, uh, as Anushka talked about, relaxing tension in the face. Uh, Maybe we prevent trouble in the first place by turning in our cell phone or just letting our gaze stay away from other people. Uh, Maybe there's some thoughts that arise, and we think, you know, I, I just don't need to give you any fuel. I'm, you know, I'm just going to back away from that one. Uh, maybe there are desires that come up, uh, and then we look at them and we gently let them go. That's a very important form of practice. And the third great way to practice is to cultivate, to create, to protect, to create, to, me, to increase that which is beneficial such as feelings of uh, patience or kindness or commitment to justice or uh, the motivation to exercise or sustain your sobriety or um, to cultivate greater capacities to have a steady mind uh, or sustain present moment awareness or simply registering, oh, it's more skillful to be like this with that person partner, family member, another person of a different kind, perhaps. Uh, And it's more skillful to be like this, and I really want to cultivate that. I want to register that and encourage that. It's a second great way to practice. Uh, In a sense, if the mind were like a garden, we can witness the garden, we can pull weeds, or plant flowers. Or, to put it simply, let be, let go, let in. Now, 
all these practices work together. Uh, we be with what happens as we let go, and we be with what happens when we let in. Also, letting go and letting in support being with. So we let go of obstructions to sustained present moment awareness. Uh, as we let in um, concentration factors and other things that help us stay with our experience, factors like, as called in psychology, distress tolerance, so we can actually tolerate our own feelings, our own experience, or what we experience as we open to the experience of others. These all work together. And, very importantly, mindfulness is present in all three. We are mindful as we cultivate that which is wholesome and beneficial as we help it grow. Um, Mindfulness is present as we let go of unhelpful views or tension in the body or we let our feelings flow or we abandon unwholesome desires. Mindfulness is present there too. And as we be with the mind, little but mindfulness is present. But even there, unless we're in a profound state of absorption, we usually need to keep encouraging some other things to be present besides mindfulness in order to simply be with the mind. But mindfulness is not equal to or only being with the mind, which is a common misunderstanding that's arisen in the culture in the last decade or two. Uh, We are to be mindful under all conditions, as the Buddha taught, standing, sitting, um, lying down, and walking about, as well as many other things he mentioned, some of which involve bathrooms. So we're mindful in all ways. Now, um, I think there's a natural trajectory in which things arise that are uncomfortable and difficult. First, we be with them, most fundamentally. We might explore them. We let them be there. We don't engage the typical practice of rushing to push them away or replace them with something happier. We be with them. Often that's just enough. Sometimes, though, it's very helpful after we be with it for a while, there's some kind of normal, or not normal perhaps, but healthy, useful rhythm in which we start to shift into letting go. Sometimes that moment comes after a few dozen seconds or we start recognizing the usual muttering in the back of the mind. Oh yeah, I recognize that voice in the back of my head. I hear you, worm tongue or whoever it might be, chattering away at us. I'm going to let that go. Other times, the transition from being with to letting go is months, if not years. Something very difficult has happened, something very painful. Um, We don't want to force the movement into letting go. And then, at some point, there's also a natural rhythm in which we, re- re- we replace what we've released. In other words, we move from letting go to letting in. There's a lot of focus in psychology and in practice on the first two of these, and I think it's important to not forget planting flowers and, um, in the garden of the mind, including to replace what we've released. This said... The primary practice is being with the mind because it's our last resort. Uh, Often we cannot engage wise effort in the mind. We can't let go or let in. We're just, the best we can do is ride out the storm. Try not to add insult to injury and pour gasoline on the flames. That's the best we can do. And that's a lot. It's also true that being with um, is necessary in order to let go or let in 
And as practice proceeds increasingly, uh, the practice of people who are very far along, as they describe it, is more and more just radically being with the emergent edge of now, continually letting go. Um, All this said, there is still certainly a place for cultivation, for encouraging the development of that which is beneficial, enjoyable, happy, wholesome, uh, virtuous for ourselves and for other people, including those uh, things that are wholesome that are summarized in Buddhism as the four Brahma-viharas, the four dwelling places, viharas, of Brahma, a representation of that which is profound and sublime. And these are also known in Tibetan Buddhism, as you may know, as the four immeasurables, boundless. They don't have an edge or an end to them. These four are compassion, kindness or loving kindness, uh, joy at the happiness or welfare of others, sometimes called altruistic or sympathetic joy, and equanimity, the capacity to experience our experience, including very difficult experiences, without being disturbed by it in our core. And this afternoon, I'm going to focus on compassion. Now, what's nice about these divine abodes is that they are available to us locally, here and now. In fact, you're living in one of the divine abodes, unless you're commuting to this retreat. Uh, We have metta, uh, that's loving-kindness in Pali. We have karuna, compassion, uh, mudita, which is sympathetic or altruistic joy, and upekka, equanimity. So it's nice to realize that every time you walk into your own dwelling place or see the dwelling places of others, that too is a reminder of the opportunity to find our true home, take our stand, find our refuge in the four immeasurables. So as I said, we'll start with compassion here this afternoon, which is most fundamentally the wish that a being not suffer. So its primary aspect is goodwill rather than ill will. Benevolence, which, whose Latin roots are benevole, a good wish, good intention, good volition. And usually with that wish are emotions or, or feelings of tender, sympathetic concern. And also, typically, the wish to help. There's research on the brains of people who go through compassion training. And one thing that's found, whoops, is that in addition to the, the wish uh, to, to help and the feeling of warmth, there actually is a kind of warming up of the motor circuits of the brain to move into a supportive action. Now, compassion is still real, even if we can't do a darn thing about the person suffering. It's still, it's still a potentially sincere and important, even if we can't help. I think of people I see in the news or read about or simply know about far away or close at home. Uh, you can't do a thing about it. Or people in my own family uh, or my father in his last months who you know, had some suffering there and um, there was nothing I could do to help. Also, I should add, is that uh, we, uh, it's interesting, the title of this this retreat, Evolving Together, compassion was evolved together over the many million years, uh, especially the last 150,000 or so years of human evolution. Uh, 
There's a good deal of research these days on the importance of compassion, which is very unusual, particularly the full flowering in, in human beings. It's very unusual in the animal kingdom. And there's a lot of research now that one of the things that helped knit hunter-gatherer bands and even primate bands together uh, was a sense of compassion, uh, the, the registration of the suffering of others and the, the wish to do something about it. I've actually read research about rats um, in... Um, you know, laboratory environments, uh, and obviously the ethics of animal research, uh, you know, are really questionable, but just, to my knowledge, uh, no one was harmed in this one. But anyway, uh, where basically rats uh, uh, can have compassion for the suffering uh, and a sense of justice related to particularly those other rats that they know well. Okay. So... We're going to start with compassion, which if you think about it, is where the Buddha started as well, in terms of the Four Noble Truths, which are the essence of the wise understanding, or right understanding, or right view aspect of the Eightfold Path. The noble truth of suffering in ourselves and in other people. There are obviously many kinds of suffering, large and small. They have the inescapable pain of a back that's just killing us, uh, you know, the sorrow in our heart uh, when someone um, that we love um, has something really hard happen to them or perhaps they pass away. Um, also subtler forms of suffering of different kinds, including, I may say, dare say, neurotic suffering, where we get all caught up, again, I know that well, in various reactions to other people or other situations. You know, what I think about what you think about what I think about what you think about me, you know, different kinds of suffering, large and small. Uh, the suffering of really wanting that dessert when you go back to the food line and it's all gone. Right? Many kinds of suffering. Now, of course, there's not only suffering in life. Sometimes the first noble truth is translated as life is suffering. That's incorrect. It's simply the truth of suffering, the fact of suffering, large and small. And there is also uh, the enjoy- enjoyment of beauty, the relaxation of an exhalation, the drinking of water when one is thirsty, finally making it to the bathroom when one has a chance to get there, um, the, the non-suffering, the joy, the happiness at the welfare of others, or uh, you know, the feeling of really using one's natural abilities for good things, or um, the taste of chocolate, uh, many, many things in addition to suffering. Still, Clearly, there's a lot of suffering, including on this retreat uh, and including the um, suffering that's sort of built into the conventional relationship to experience uh, in which we tend to want to hold on to and thingify uh, experiences that are passing away and are insubstantial. So what do we do with suffering, our own and other people? This is where another translation of the word noble can come in, because recent scholarship suggests that perhaps a better translation of the noble truths is the ennobling truths. It's ennobling to face one's own suffering with an open heart and clear eyes. It's ennobling to face the suffering with others with an open heart and clear eyes. It's also ennobling, obviously, in terms of the second and third and fourth noble truths, to do what we can to relieve the suffering of ourselves and relieve the suffering of others to the best of our ability. So how do we do this? How do we dwell in the heavenly abode 
of compassion, fundamentally. Um, We can engage formal practices, which we'll do momentarily in here. We can also, the formal practices that um, activate or call up or evoke or open to or encourage experiences of compassion, and then practices that help these really become installed, internalized, as some kind of lasting change inside us, so we actually have a growth curve, as it were, as we move through life, in reference certainly to compassion, if not other things as well. We can do formal practice, which we'll do. And also we can do lots and lots of compassion, as well as other beneficial practices and cultivations, in the informal flow of everyday life. Now there are many ways to formally practice compassion. You may well have been exposed to a number of them already. And um, there are also many traditions that have to do with um, and, and approaches to compassion outside of Buddhism. The Buddha had no monopoly on compassion. We certainly have no monopoly on compassion practices here at this retreat. Classically, in the sometimes called Theravadan branch of Buddhism, the sort of now centered in Southeast Asia and grounded in the original early teachings of the Buddha and um, the first few centuries of Buddhism in northern India, in this lineage, there, are, there is a traditional practice of compassion that applies it as well as other wholesome wishes to five types of beings. Benefactors, those for whom we naturally have lots of gratitude or it's easy to flow good wishes toward. Second, friends, who could include mates, family members, or friends in a more ordinary sense. Third, neutral beings, um, maybe a distant acquaintance we don't feel particularly one way or about, someone down the street or in the apartment building that we recognize but we actually don't know their name. Could be someone walking past us on a sidewalk. Could be beings we imagine on the other side of the world, neutral. Then we have um, the difficult person, so-called. Um, there's obviously a range of difficulty. Uh, and then we have ourself. Last and not least, it's the fifth target, if you will, or category of good wishes. Now, humans are not the only potential object or target of these good wishes. We can apply them to non-human beings as well as to individuals or to entire groups. And if we like, we can step outside these categories and radiate compassion, as it said, non-referentially, in all directions, uh, omitting none. Those are the five basic categories. Also, related to that, um, there are four types of wishes, which uh, will be explored in here. Wishes that beings be safe, Wishes that beings be healthy, that they be happy, and that they live with ease. Living with ease generally having to do with material circumstances, um, you know, getting that job, um, having enough food to eat, um, things like that. And of course, it's very fine, as with any practice, to pragmatically find what's most beneficial to you. What is striking to to me, and I think many others as well, is that the Buddha was very interested in what is true, but he was primarily interested in what helped. That was his primary interest, what's useful. And so if you find for yourself that it's useful to shift categories or shift wishes or modify these practices, you know, that's really up to you to do. Um, It's also fine when you think about expressing wishes in the mind to use words softly in the back of the mind or 
simply feel it in your heart, non-verbally or somatically, emotionally, kind of this warm-heartedness, a lovingness, a, a friendliness toward other beings. It's interesting that the root of the word for loving-kindness in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, is friend. Loving-kindness sounds kind of fancy, all right? Maybe out of reach. But friendliness, you know, I can handle that. So, um, Wes and Anishka, uh, in their own teachings, tomorrow and the day after, may well explore these five targets of compassion and uh, four fundamental categories of wishes uh, in a very you know, systematic way. Uh, this afternoon with you, I'll, I'll simplify both of these as we focus on compassion. And I'll do something simpler. So first, I'll suggest, and again, feel free to do what works for you, that you focus on someone that's easy to find compassion for. Could be someone you care about a lot or someone who naturally elicits compassion for you. Perhaps a friend, a benefactor, a child, you know, a pet, an animal companion, maybe a group of beings, refugees, war-torn countries, something that naturally moves you easily. The second person I'll suggest, or second being, is a mildly, underline that word, mildly difficult person. It could be someone you love dearly and who also gets under your skin. Uh, could be someone that you appreciate a lot, but there is this thing they keep doing that bugs you. Uh, or maybe there's something about them that you disapprove of in some way. Someone who's mildly difficult. As the retreat progresses, if you want to raise the ante for yourself, feel very free and Things may well arise on their own, but it's okay to pace yourself here as well and kind of solidify and stabilize your own skills and then move on to the next thing. Also, we'll do compassion for that being who is often the hardest of all for many of us, oneself. Um, There's a lot about this that we'll explore over the course of the retreat. I'll, I'll simply say in the moment that These days, a lot of research on self-compassion shows how valuable it is in many, many kinds of ways, including two in particular I just want to call out. One is that actually self-compassion tends to relax selfing, tends to relax. It helps us take things less personally and reduce the sense of ego and conceit. Interesting. You could think of self here as person compassion. We have compassion for the person altogether that we are, even if there's no little entity inside, you know, looking out through the eyes and running the show. Second thing that self-compassion can do, I want to draw attention to, is it helps us deal with challenges in life. It doesn't make us weaker to have a sweetness, a kindness, a gentleness, an encouragement uh, toward ourselves. It actually makes us more able to deal with the hard things in life that inevitably come our way. Uh, And for many people in their lives, come their way every day. Um, Okay. Also, I'm going to encourage three aspects of compassion that are grounded on research that talks about three fundamental sort of neural networks uh, that relate to each one of these aspects. The first of these is empathy. Really letting the other person land. Feeling them. Often that's our first response, a kind of visceral awe to pain and suffering. And it's interesting that often it takes a second or two or three for that visceral reaction to arise, especially if we're just glancing at someone or we're just getting information conceptually. Uh, One of the gifts we can offer people is to slow it down enough 
for them, for their suffering to pierce our ordinary zoom-zoom consciousness, to really feel it. The second aspect of compassion is, a, is sort of the meaning of their suffering. And here it's important to know that compassion is available to us even if we disapprove of the other person, or even if we think that their suffering has been caused by themselves. Uh, conventionally, people often withhold compassion to, uh, from those that they think deserve their suffering or are bad in some way, or we don't like them, or they're not like us, or we disapprove of them. And in principle, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, um, the offering of compassion um, omits none, fundamentally. Now, for it to be authentic, we may have to work our way up the ladder, but <clears throat> it's useful to be mindful of the meanings that arise as we you know, engage, engage or see the suffering of others, including ourselves, and to help ourselves with some of those meanings, including to take our home in the fundamental meaning that um, you know, even if that person is not someone we like or whose politics we approve of or whose actions we disapprove of, what have you, still we can recognize that they are suffering and that we are all evolving together. And if only to realize that a beautiful gift to ourselves is to find compassion for the other, the difficult person. For myself, just bottom line, and I know when, when I've got a, a wrangle with somebody else, when, I, when I'm entangled with them, I never get free until two things happen. Till one, I can locate you know, maximum reasonable personal responsibility, not overdoing it, but not underdoing it, naming to myself the causes that have flowed through me. Um, not necessarily ones to be remorseful about, although often uh, causes to recognize how I could be more skillful about in the future. And then second, um, and I get to decide, you get to decide what's maximum and reasonable. Second, I don't get free until I find compassion for them. So it's a kind of gift to ourselves to find compassion for those um, that have wronged us, that aggravate us, or we don't approve of. And then the third aspect of compassion in terms of neural networks is motivation. It's the mobilization of a wish, of a stance toward the other, minimally the wish that they not suffer. So we'll explore all these with regard, we'll explore these three aspects with each of these three people. And I'll just kind of keep moving it along. If you want to take more time with any one of these things, feel very free. Okay? And feel very free to continue this practice as you like, later today or in the walking after this, um, or at any, or after the retreat is over. Okay? So here we go. And I'll try to keep my own suggestions to the minimum. I don't, I have mixed feelings about guided practices when I'm on the receiving end, so I apologize in advance for intruding upon your mind during your meditation. Okay, so here we go. Finding a basic centeredness here and now. Coming into this moment this body, this streaming of consciousness,
And then we'll move through three beings about five minutes each. First, picking a being, or if you like, a group of beings, human or non-human. Generally, it's recommended to choose beings who are currently alive, although that's not necessary. And finding someone or a group of beings who is easy to mobilize compassion for. Could be someone who's helped you a lot, who's having a difficult time. Could be a friend, a family member, perhaps a child, an animal, non-human animal, you know. And in the beginning, see if you can open to and let your heart be moved by their suffering. To be able to really receive the suffering of others can help to keep stabilizing a sense of being here in your own body, a mindful awareness of their suffering, so you're not overwhelmed by it. If you're overwhelmed by it, it's hard to keep offering compassion. Establishing in your mind a basic centeredness that can really receive the suffering of, I'll call it, this friend. not getting lost in any kind of story, very primal, very open, registering of their suffering, feeling of it. You're in pain like I know pain. It hurts for you. And I may not know exactly how it hurts for you, but I know about things hurting, really feeling their suffering. If it's overwhelming, just touch it lightly and recenter in your breath. Otherwise, opening as much as you can. And then the second aspect of compassion we'll be exploring is just how you see their suffering or the meanings that arise in the mind, some of which might be helpful for compassion, some of which might get in your way. What are your opinions about their suffering or the factors in their life that have led to suffering? What's the meaning of their suffering to you? 
or many meanings, of course. And then the third aspect of compassion, seeing if you can find your way to a genuine wish that they not suffer. Encouraging in yourself, opening to in yourself, a warm heartedness, a sympathetic, tender concern. Perhaps supported with soft thoughts in the back of the mind like, may you not suffer? Or thoughts that are more specific, like may you find food? May your pain ease? May you find work? May you not worry so much about your children? It's okay if other kinds of wishes come in, like wishes that they be happy. It's all right. But mainly now for the next few minutes, mobilizing, refueling waves of good wishes and care and concern, compassion toward this being. There might be few, if any, words in your mind for them. Just a warmth, perhaps a light radiating, rippling out from you in waves, perhaps, toward them. transition here to the second person, second being. Someone who's mildly difficult. I'll say less and less in this and the next practice. First, as you can, opening to their suffering, having empathy for it, 
letting yourself be touched by it as part of the truth, alongside whatever else might be true. One thing that helps me is to imagine the younger being inside everyone. Sometimes I have to imagine a really young being in that other person. Whatever helps you to open to their pain. Second, being aware of your opinions about them and their suffering, the meanings, your views, ones that are helpful and perhaps ones that are not so helpful. And then as you can, exploring the sincere wish that they not suffer. mindful of how compassion affects you, including perhaps how your compassion for the difficult person might help you suffer them less, or suffer less in relationship to them.
the third being, the one who wears your name tag. Perhaps knowing your own stress, your own burdens, your own pain, disappointments, worries from the inside, or maybe seeing yourself outside yourself, or both ways, whatever works for you, a kind of opening to and recognizing some of your own suffering. You might imagine yourself as another person who has your life and imagine how you would feel if you got to know that person deeply, like you know yourself. Could you let yourself be moved by the suffering of this being who happens to be you? Also being mindful of some of your many opinions about your own suffering, its causes, its scale, whose fault it is, your own, others, what to do about it. And not trying to get lost in all that. A lot of it is probably not very helpful. Just taking a moment to be aware of some of it, particularly opinions or views They get in the way of finding a genuine good wishes for yourself, compassion and friendliness and supportiveness toward yourself. If it's helpful, you might deliberately step back from or even let go of views or meanings or opinions about your suffering that are not helpful, that get in the way. Views you would probably let go of if you were aware of the suffering of another person who had a life like yours.
And then last, finding good wishes for yourself. Perhaps expressed in words like, may I not suffer? Or wishes that are more specific, like, may this pain ease, or may it at least not bother me so much. May my health care go well. May I be less preoccupied with the wounds in this life that I've experienced. Or other kinds of wishes or feelings toward yourself, perhaps encouragement or a kind of healthy sympathy, commiseration, understanding. Of course that hurts. Seeing if you can find a a friendliness, even a sweetness towards yourself. There might be a sense of compassion and support for yourself sinking down into you. Perhaps soothing and easing wounded places inside. Perhaps coming in like a soothing golden balm. Maybe pushing aside self-criticism that which tears you down. taking a last minute now with these practices, however you like.
And remembering as we finish here that our primary practice on retreat is being with what's there, allowing it, seeing it, letting it come and letting it go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.